Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday. Uh, it's been another roller coaster this week for startups, many of which have received many memos at this point about the downturn and what it means for their business. Of course, the most notable is undoubtedly the memo that came out this week that Sequoia Capital recently sent out to its portfolio companies, letting them know that this time around, the venture firm does not expect the market to snap back as quickly as it did a couple of years ago. Sequoia holds a lot of sway over founders, and for good reason, given its track record over the years. We do feel compelled to note here that Sequoia has famously authored two earlier memos, its RIP Good Times memo in 2008 and its Black Swan memo in March of 2020, and both times it's been gloomier about startups' prospects than proved necessary, so we'll see. Either way, I think we have collectively overdosed on these things for now, so hopefully we'll get a break from them for a bit. Now, on to the news. Substack, the newsletter platform that journalists in particular love to obsess about, has reportedly shelved plans for now for a Series C round in the range of $75 million to $100 million, a round that would have set Substack's valuation at $750 million to $1 billion. Those sound like wild-eyed numbers, but the five-year-old company's valuation is already pretty high-flying, $650 million as of last year, when it closed on $65 million in Series B funding. Indeed, its valuation suddenly seems to be problematic. While Substack maybe would have settled for a so-called flat round, that's basically what raising $100 million at a $750 million valuation would have meant. It sounds now like Substack was faced instead with the prospect of a down round, which is a development that founding teams try to avoid. Still, putting a pin in its fundraising plans won't fix the problem, which seems to be that Substack is nowhere near worth $650 million or $750 million, and certainly not a billion dollars. Not right now, anyway. According to the New York Times, which reported on Substack's abandoned fundraising plans yesterday, the firm has told investors that it generated around $9 million last year in revenue. It's not apples to apples, but when you think about the email service provider MailChimp, which is the back end of a lot of newsletters, you start to appreciate that there is a big disconnect here. MailChimp, which sold to Intuit last year for $12 billion in stock, had revenue of $700 million, meaning Intuit paid 17 times revenue to acquire MailChimp. If Substack was valued at 17 times its 2021 revenue, its value would be $153 million. By the way, MailChimp is a sticky subscription business with recurring revenue. Substack is not. We don't mean to pick on Substack. We do wonder what Andreessen Horowitz, which led both Substack's Series A and its Series B rounds, was thinking. Looking back now, it's clear the firm way overpriced this deal, and now Substack is being left to figure it out, which kind of stinks for Substack. We'll see what happens next. Just this past February, Connie wrote about a plan concocted by Bolt founder and ex-CEO Ryan Breslow to offer every Bolt employee the opportunity to borrow money from the company in order to exercise their stock options. Breslow tweeted that over half of eligible employees took out loans. At the time, many veteran investors advised caution. As Jeff Richards, a managing director of GGV Capital, told Connie, Usually, I stay out of commenting on founder advice threads, 
but on this one, I couldn't remain silent. It is literally one of the worst pieces of advice you can give fellow founders. So many of us have lived through the nightmare scenario of trying to help employees with loans deal with the inevitable downside. It's just sad. Most importantly, contrary to Ryan's tweet, it's not new. Thousands of companies have done this. There's a reason good ones don't do it anymore. It's a terrible idea. Well, it turns out Richards was right. On Wednesday, Bolt laid off one-third of its workforce in response to, quote, macro challenges, Bolt chief executive Maju Kuravila wrote on the company's blog. In an article in yesterday's Axios, Dan Primack followed up with the company. A Bolt spokesperson told him that only a, quote, single-digit number of laid-off employees took out the loans and that the aggregate amount was below $200,000. She added that the company plans to, quote, work with those individuals. Still, a startup lawyer told Primac that Bolt is not the only startup giving out these recourse loans. As the market continues to churn, let's hope that future startups learn from Bolt's example. A lot of people are right now trying to figure out how analogous or not this downturn is to the downturn of 2000, when in April of that year, the tech industry that had boomed almost completely collapsed, wiping out thousands of jobs, erasing billions of dollars in gains, and washing out more than half the venture firms that were writing checks at the time. We've been having discussions with a number of VCs who were in the industry at the time, either as operators or investors, and the consensus seems to be that this moment is different. Brad Feld of Foundry Group, who was investing on behalf of a since-disbanded outfit called Mobius VC 20 years ago, says the comparison to 2000 is, quote, not that interesting to me because there were many different conflating factors. In fact, Feld said, when I hear people telling stories about the internet bubble and relating it to this moment, I feel simultaneously old and amused. Greg Gretsch of Jackson Square Ventures also has a strong point of view on the topic. In a lengthy email exchange with us, Gretsch wrote that 2000 was a, quote, tech-driven bubble and subsequent crash. This reset, he added, has really nothing to do with tech. It's being driven by inflation, rising interest rates, the shrinking of the Fed balance sheet, post-pandemic supply chain disruptions, and war in Europe. Gretsch also noted that today's startups are real and massive, whereas in 2000, many, if not most of the businesses, didn't really have businesses. There are, however, similarities, Gretsch noted. Most obviously, he said, the market has switched from greed to fear. As a result, Gretsch said, capital will be tight for a while. In his words, venture firms have tons of dry powder, but as in 2000, we've now entered a period where venture capitalists have really deep pockets and really short arms. Further, wrote Gretsch, the pain will be widely felt. As Gretsch says, quote, there's always a lot of schadenfreude for the companies that were selling snake oil, getting their comeuppance. But unfortunately, the carnage in a market correction isn't limited to weak companies. Bad markets negatively impact good companies and good people. The important thing now, said Gretsch, is just to stay solvent. We should maybe note here that he boldfaced this part. Surviving is winning, he wrote. Solvent companies find it easier to take market share, and solvent individuals are there and ready when the next bull market inevitably begins. And it will, he added. Up next, Alex talks with the very personable Ed Sim, who, like Gretsch and Feld, has seen a cycle or two, having begun his venture career at Don Treader Ventures in 1998. Sim went on to co-found his own firm, Bold Start Ventures, in 2010, and he has plenty of thoughts on what's happening out there right now, too. But first, a word from our sponsor. (music) 
Startup founders have enough to worry about without stressing over their company's next round of financing. Unburden yourself by raising an equity crowdfunding round through SeedInvest and get instantly connected to the platform's community of over 600,000 investors who are ready and willing to back your business. Hundreds of startups have found success on SeedInvest, and yours could be next. Find out more or apply today at go.seedinvest.com slash VC. That's go.seedinvest.com slash VC. And now our interview with Ed Sim, the founder of Bold Start, which aims to write first checks for developer-first crypto infra and SaaS founders. Some of Sim's first check investments include Sneak, Customer, Big ID, Superhuman, Security Scorecard, Front, Harbor Data, and Block Daemon. We wanted to talk to Sim about how the startup market has changed since the market's big meltdown. We mostly managed to do so, although I did manage to almost cut Sim off in mid-sentence at the end of our interview. Apologies, Ed. Here's that conversation. Ed Sim, it's great to speak with you again. We last talked to you last year in February, and you had just raised a $230 million fund. And we wanted to check in with you about what's going on out there in the tech world. It seems like the markets have stumbled. What are you seeing out there? What are you telling your entrepreneurs? Yeah. Hey, Alex, thanks for having me. I can't believe it's been a year. Just to let you know, those were two separate funds. So our core day one fund was a little over 150 and the opportunity fund for existing companies as a scale was 75. As far as the markets are concerned, this sucks. <laughs> I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But at the same time, I do think that things are a bit too frothy. And hopefully once we get through this bump or correction, the question is, is how long will it last? things can normalize again. So as far as what we're telling our companies, the first thing you have to look at is cash is king. If you have cash, you've got to preserve it. As far as hard and fast rules around runway, we don't have hard and fast rules, but I think there's two clear delineations. The stage where we enter is two founders, no code and a deck. And for those founders, we'll call it pre-product market fit. Our traditional history has always been funding them. So there's at least 24 months of cash, if not more. They should not be doing anything other than hiring engineers and getting a product at the door. It's very simple. No product, no company. On the flip side, if you have product market fit, the question is understanding how much money you're spending on sales and marketing, because that's where you can burn money very quickly. If traditionally in enterprise sales, that's where we focus is infrastructure, dev tooling, security, some blockchain infra. If you actually start hiring six months in advance, right? So people have already hired people in advance right now, then you have to ask yourself, what made the next six months look like? How do I pause hiring? How do I look at my existing team? How do I extend runway? There's no hard and fast rule because you first have to assess where you're at. And I think, Alex, the hard part is this is where the rationality comes in or the irrationality is around the honesty of, do I truly have product market fit or not? And that is where the rubber meets the road, to be honest with you. What sort of proof points are you telling your companies they have to achieve in order to raise follow-on investment? I think it varies by stage, but let me just hit the first round to the Series A. Look, I think right now there used to be concept A rounds done, and there very well may still be some concept A rounds done based on who the people are and the market opportunity. But I think those will be farther and fewer between. 
Number two is I think the round sizes. I mean, Alex, you and I have known each other back in, in your red herring days. When was that? Like 1996, 98, 2000? Do you remember the size of those A rounds back then? Three million. Yeah. Five million, seven million. You're also a VC going through this market. If you look at the median A round, at least in our portfolio, it was around $20 million. So when you talk to other investors who are traditional classic series A investors, the question always is, are they raising 20 again? Because the idea is that they would rather folks raise 10 or 12. So reduce that round size. Why do they want to do that? In a weird way, it's kind of perverse. But as we all know, the amount you raise is also a function of dilution. You're going to get diluted the same amount either way, whether you raise 20 or 12. So that's their way of saying, I want to adjust the valuation without saying it. But the bottom line is product market fit is a big signal. And from our perspective, it's very simple. Do you have a product that people absolutely love? Do you know exactly the persona they can reach out to? Have you cold outreached them? Do you know exactly how you can get to them on a repeatable basis? And if you spend dollars against that, do you think you can grow your revenue? And the problem is people think they have that, but they don't. And that's where a lot of money can get burned. And trust me, I've, I've been there through the dot-com bubble in 2000. I've been through 08. I've been through all the things between, and that's where the rubber meets the road. Do you think we're going to see more two-handed, three-handed deals and less instances where VC firms are coming in and taking the whole round? It's truly to tell. But what I can tell you, though, is the late-stage spigots are off for now. If you talk to late-stage growth investors... First, you have the crossover folks. Guess what they're all doing? Guess what they've been doing for 12 months? They've been investing in A rounds. They've been going early. And so that group is gone. And not to mention that their public portfolios have been decimated. Two is the traditional growth funds now are just on pause because I think people are just trying to figure out where does the dust settle? Every day we look at the markets right now, it's hard to predict what multiples are, but they keep going down. So I, I think that's an interesting perspective. Whether we see two or three handed deals, there still is a lot of capital out there. That's been raised over time. And for the best companies, of course, people are going to want to own as much as they can of those best companies. So if that means writing a bigger check and, and doing more, then they're going to continue to do that, to be honest with you. The question is, would you believe is the best company today versus what it looks like in three years is someone's guess. Are there terms that you would tell your portfolio companies to consider that you wouldn't consider a year ago? Well, the answer to me would be right now, not at this time, in the sense that I kind of like to see VC as a long-term approach, right? It's, it's probably the riskiest asset class. And what I like to tell people is that when things are going so great, you don't want to be too ecstatic. When things are too bad, you don't want to be too beaten up. You want to try to find this neutral position. The types of founders that we back tends to be more stake than sizzle. They're technical founders. If anything, you probably have to push them to, to scale a little bit faster than not. And so my perspective is that the whole idea of growth at all costs is over. So if investors and founders have been doing the right thing, they find a balanced approach to growth. So to shortcut your answer, I don't have to tell my companies anything right now because they're not in desperate need for capital. So the real question is going to be, how do they continue to grow into those valuations once this dust settles and we, we figure out where the multiples bottom out? Have you heard about companies that have had pulled term sheets? Absolutely. Pulled term sheets are definitely out there more on the later stage side. There are also terms I've seen for the first time I, I saw a 2x liquidation preference on a pretty sizable round and founders can get shocked when they see that because on the one hand, I raised money, I maintained my valuation, but the reality is maintaining your valuation is not great if you actually take a 2x liquidation preference and realize that under certain scenarios, you're not going to make a dime. Is there a participating preferred as well? I haven't seen those yet, but I did see a 2x lick pref. First one I've seen in a long time. So that's a sign. Yeah. 
So bottom line is you don't want to be in a position to be raising cash right now. That is the bottom line. You don't want to be raising cash if you don't have to. Let's make sure you manage it and preserve it. But at the same time, I'm not a believer in default alive, default dead. You have to keep investing to build a product. How are you advising companies to talk to VPs of engineering at some of the top companies who may feel a little bit skittish about joining a startup right now? Yeah, well, if you're going to the metas and those big companies, those probably aren't the best places to be finding people because anyone that's been at those companies for a few years are probably risk averse. They're getting paid a lot of money. They probably don't want to do a startup. Where are you going to find the best traction for our founders is going to the unicorn companies that race a lot that maybe have not proved themselves, who are completely underwater in stock. Those are the best opportunities to find and attract talent. And in fact, this is going to be a great opportunity to level out talent acquisition, right? Because in the past, access to capital was the easy part. Access to talent was the hard part. I think access to capital is going to be harder to come by, even though there is a lot of capital out there, but access to talent, there'll be more opportunities because of that. You said last year that your investment pace, even with COVID, had not slowed. Have you seen anything slow down or is it too early for that? Look, it almost sounds trite, but we do seriously believe that the stage that we're investing in, it's two founders who are technical founders, um, probably creating new markets that are two years ahead of where they're at. Great time to be investing. So we still continue to see founders starting companies. In fact, you've got to be kind of nuts to go and start a company right now with no funding, right? <laughs> I mean, you have to be a truly missionary founder to start something. And, and we love missionary founders. I'll give you great examples. I tweeted out today something about Rob Lacasio from Live Person. And that was the last company that went public. It was April of 2000. We thought we were going to go out at $16 a share. Then it was 12. Then it was 10. And we went out at eight because we needed the money. And we survived and, and being worth a couple billion. I'm not sure where the market cap is today, but he was a missionary founder. He's still CEO of that company many years later. Or Constantine from Blockdaemon. He survived something very similar, which was Crypto Winter in 2018. He did seven seed rounds, did not pay himself a little bit here and there. And fast forward, he's a market leader in crypto info right now. I mean, that, those are the types of founders that will start companies who are actually crazy enough, who believe in their product and vision enough to start something. As far as a slowdown, the late stage is all but dead for now. That is what we're seeing right now. What are you hearing from LPs? Are they changing their expectations? Are they looking at funds differently? Yeah, it's so funny. I literally was just talking to one of our LPs a few days ago. And basically, think about this. The cycles were so fast. Funds were coming back to market in 12 to 15 months that the beginning of this year, the first quarter of this year, some of the LPs have already allocated 75 to 80% of their capital to existing managers. So where does that leave? 20%? Well, guess what happened to that 20%? The denominator effect kicks in if the market drops 20 to 30%. The percentage of allocations to VC and private equity have now gone from 20% to 25 to 28% of the portfolio, which means you're over allocated now. So that is something to really pay attention to. The people who actually have had a track record of creating value for their LPs and are coming back to re-up, they will get capital. It's going to be tougher for new emerging managers or first-time managers or second-time managers without some marks. And the, the next thing they'll look at is who the marks are from and how. And in their minds, they'll adjust those to figure out one layer of diligence deeper, these real businesses or not. So I think it's going to be really interesting. you know. And I think the cycle will truly adjust 
when you see how this capital allocation moves along in terms of existing funds versus new funds. So just for me, who is an English major, you're saying that because equities are marked to market every day, the value decreases much more rapidly and therefore the value of VC is still artificially high and their exposure there is out of whack. Exactly. For example, let's just say if you had $50 million allocated to VC of 200 million, that's 25%. And now let's just say your 200 million now is worth 150. And now your 50 million is still there. That's an allocation you've got to actually write cold hard cash to. Now it's 33%. Do you see a lot of your VC peers perhaps investing in public market deals? Well, clearly the crossover folks are. Secondly, there are some late stage investors that can put some money into publics as well. Let's say like up to 20% of their portfolio. And I mean, there are definitely some deals to be had. Just looking at my market, I was just looking today at GitLab, I think it was worth 5 billion, HashiCorp at 5.5 billion. I mean, even Snowflake went down from 120 to 45 billion or something like that. Are you a buyer? Personally, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also a buyer of some ETH as well. ETH at 1900 and whatnot is definitely not a bad thing. Oh, wow. You definitely have a high risk tolerance. Well, it's good to be in cash too, right? That's it. Thanks for listening. See you here next week. For our audience in the U.S., have a great Memorial Day weekend.